Thanks, Dave. Good morning. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Welcome to the Parkway Church. Glad that you are with us this morning. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along, we will be in Romans 9, 14 through 23, as, uh, as Dave just read. And uh, so we'll be going through this pretty quickly because we have a fairly significant uh, chunk of uh, Scripture to work through, not only in size, but also in difficulty. Uh, So as you are uh, making your way there in your Bible or on your phone or iPad or whatever it might be, I want to tell you a little bit of a story. So uh, my wife, who I dearly love, she's here uh, right now. Her name's Casey, and uh, and she loves taking baths. And one of the things she likes to do as she's in a bath is she likes to have her phone in there with her, and uh, and then she will text friends and she will uh, uh, look up recipes. She loves looking up recipes. She's a great cook. And, uh, and so um, I have warned her for five years of marriage now that one day she's going to drop her phone in the water. It's coming. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be a year or two years or three years or a day or whatever it might be. And, uh, and so the other day I walk into the kitchen and uh, I see a bag of rice out. And then I see Casey and her face is sullen. And so I asked her, what's wrong? And all she says is, it happened. It finally happened. And I knew, oh, okay. So we did the, the whole, put the, the, the phone in a bag of rice thing, and it worked. And so to this day, now her phone is working. There seems to be no adverse effects or anything like that. But for about 48 hours, while the phone was uh, cooking in rice, I don't know what it does in the rice, uh, while it, the, the phone was in the rice, she didn't have uh, a phone. And so uh, there were a couple of times where I let her borrow mine if she was driving somewhere, but there were also some times I needed mine. And so, uh, so she had to, to run some errands. And uh, part of the errands that she was running was taking some food to some members whose house she'd never been to before. And, uh, and so she got online on her computer at home, and then she looked up directions. And then she wanted to print the directions, but our printer's broken. And, uh, and so she had to write down the directions. Raise your hand if you remember when anytime you wanted to go somewhere, you had to kind of write down directions, right? Some of us uh, remember that. Back before they had Google Maps, that's not something that God just kind of handed down to us. Uh, on Sinai or something, he didn't give us Google Maps. Uh, back before we had GPS and all of those kinds of things, if you wanted to go somewhere, you would have to get directions. You'd call somebody, you'd say, hey, I'm going to come over to your house, and you'd say, how do I get there? And they would tell you. And I think you could tell a lot about someone by the way that they give you directions. All right? Oftentimes, you would call someone, you'd say, hey, how do I get to your house? And they would give you directions, and those directions would include things like, turn southwest. And I would think, I'm not Magellan. That's not my last name. There are no famous explorers with the last name Ashley. It's not like Lewis and Clark and Ashley or something like that. I have no idea which way Southwest is. That is super unhelpful. You would have others who would, uh, who would say something like, uh, what you want to do is you want to take the third or fourth street, which is exciting. It's like a choose-your-own-adventure novel, right? But it's ambiguous. It's unhelpful. That doesn't actually get you where you are uh, trying to go. Others would say something like, uh, you want to take a right at the big red sign. And so every sign I see, I think, is this big enough? Is this red enough? When someone tells me you can't miss it, I always think, don't tell me what I can't do. I can and I will absolutely miss whatever it is that you think I can't miss. I need specifics. I need for someone to say, take a right on your third street, which is named El Dorado. Maybe even spell out El Dorado for me, all right? 
And, uh, and then it's helpful if they also say, oh, by the way, you will, it's just past Target. If you get to Walmart, you've gone too far. I love those things. I love to be specific. Those things function as checkpoints. You can kind of see. When you see a target, you know, okay, right after this, I'm going to turn. When you get to Walmart, you know, okay, I've gone too far. Well, our text this morning is going to give us some of these sort of theological checkpoints. Paul has been flying down the highway of theology uh, in Romans 9, and so he's going to give us these theological checkpoints so that you and I make sure that we are following along correctly. Let me tell you in particular what those uh, checkpoints are. Romans 9.14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? I think we have it, but it's not coming up there. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. That's the first one. Then we get to verse 19, and there's another little theological checkpoint. It says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? So these are functioning as, again, these theological checkpoints to make sure we are following Paul correctly because our passage last week was super, super difficult, very tough, very hard. Before they were born or had done anything, either good or bad, God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. God chose Jacob and not Esau. We talked about this last week. This is what is called unconditional election, that God chooses whomever he desires for salvation, not on the basis of some condition they meet. That's why we call it unconditional election, not on the basis of some sort of condition that they meet, not because they're good enough, not because they're smart enough, not because they're rich enough, not because of their gender or their ethnicity, not even because of their faith. In fact, faith itself is a gift of God's grace that He gives to the elect. So that is a really, really, really tough truth. That is hard for us to embrace. And because we might have understood, He's going to give us these theological checkpoints. In case you're thinking, surely... Paul doesn't mean what we think that he means. If Paul means what we think he means, that means that God might be unjust. So he asked this question, is God unjust? Or that people can't be held responsible for their sin. If God's sovereign, you can't hold people responsible for their sin. And so he asked this question. These are the objections. They focus uh, or they function as these checkpoints. So what I want to do is I want to pray for us, and then we will uh, dive into the text and see where uh, Paul Uh, and the Holy Spirit leads us. I want to first just ask you to pray for yourself just as you come in with with burdens, with distractions, maybe even as I mention the words unconditional election, something rises up in you and you get frustrated. Would you just ask the Lord to give you eyes to see and ears to hear? And then would you pray that for those around you, for your family, friends, complete strangers sitting around you, that the Lord would give us a collective heart to love His Word. And would you pray for me, that I would be faithful uh, to His Word. So Father, we do ask for Your help, that You would incline our hearts to Your testimonies, that You would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in Your Word, that You would unite our hearts to fear Your name and satisfy us this morning with Your steadfast love, because You're a good Father who gives good gifts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We'll begin in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Something about our text last week seems to call into question 
God's justice and righteousness. Thus the objection. Something about the text seems on the surface to call into question God's righteousness, God's justice, God's fairness. And what was it? What's the fact that Isaac was chosen rather than Ishmael? The fact that Jacob was chosen rather than Esau? And not only that, but the fact that that choice was made before they were born or had done anything either good or bad without taking into account any of their actions at all. In other words, the doctrine of unconditional election. So as I mentioned before, this objection is going to provide a bit of a theological checkpoint for us to make sure we're really following Paul. Let's imagine that we've misinterpreted verses 6 through 13. Let's say that we imagine that uh, God's choice in election is dependent on, uh, on what we do or that God's choice is dependent on our faith. God uh, chooses those whom he knows will choose him, or something like that. Let's imagine that that's what we think Paul is saying in verses uh, 6 through 14. Well, if Paul would have meant that, notice how this objection doesn't make sense at all. It won't seem at all like God is unjust. How is it unjust, even on the surface for us, to understand God chooses those who are going to choose him? That doesn't seem unjust. So there's something about verses 6 through 13 that must seem unjust. That's the unconditional aspect of election. Paul's just said that the election of God's people, his predestinating uh, decree, his choosing is not dependent on us at all. That's the emphasis there, at all. Nothing we say, nothing we do, nothing we think, nothing we believe, nothing about us whatsoever influences God's choice of who is and is not His people. Not in the slightest. Now that seems unjust. I think if we're all being honest, that reality seems unjust. For God to choose us without taking into account anything about us without taking into account any of our good works, without taking into account any of our faith, without taking into account anything at all about us. That seems unjust. It isn't unjust. We're going to talk about that. But the fact that it seems unjust helps us to know that we're really following along. We're tracking with what, uh, with what Paul is saying. We're going the right direction. So that's what Paul is responding to here in verse 14. In other words, if you read Romans 9 in such a way that you get to this objection and you can't understand why this objection would come up in the first place, it means you've taken a wrong turn uh, somewhere along the way. So let's see the ground or the reason or the defense for rejecting the idea that God's righteousness has been compromised by the doctrine of election. Verse 15 Paul gives the reason. He says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is how we know that God's election doesn't compromise or negate his justice. That God is not unjust even in the work of unconditional election. Anyone know off the top of your head where this quote, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, where this quote is from in the Old Testament? It's from uh, the book of Exodus. It's actually in response to something that Moses has asked of God. So let's look in Exodus 33, 17 through 19. We'll put it up on the screen. 
And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Listen to this. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And then look at God's response. And he, that's God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. If you ever wonder why predestination, if you ever wonder why election is practical, why it's important, why it's not mere theological fodder for academics, if you ever wonder why we spent time on it in our theological quipping class, why we don't just skip over Romans 9 or Romans 8 or something like that, if you ever wonder why this is practical and profound and important for our lives, consider what this passage says. This is how God demonstrates His glory. When Moses asks to see God's glory, God responds that His glory consists, at least in part, of His ultimate freedom to show grace and mercy as He pleases. So if your and my, if our overarching, undergirding purpose in life is to see and to savor and to share, to experience and to enjoy the glory of God, then to some degree we'll always be limited in our ability to enjoy God's glory as long as we don't understand this doctrine of election. It's kind of like describing ice cream when you don't have taste buds. It's kind of like describing a sunset when you don't have the gift of sight. Your ability to do it is somehow deficient. It's limited. So by understanding election, not only does our understanding of who God is raise, the ceiling of our theology raises, but also the ceiling of our doxology, the ceiling of our ability to worship God rightly is going to raise as we understand Him rightly. So how does this quote that Paul gives here in Romans 9 from Exodus 33, how does this quote prove God's justice? This is really fascinating if you've never thought about it before. The reason is because justice is not some sort of standard that sits over God in judgment. It's not like you have God here and then you have justice here and God looks upward and sees what is the just thing to do. No, instead we have those inverted. God is the definer of justice. We don't measure God by some external standard of justice. We measure justice by God Himself. Here's what I mean by that, that the glory of God is the standard. It's the ruler, if you will. It's the measuring stick of justice and, uh, and righteousness, which is why oftentimes in the Scripture you'll see sin or you'll see unrighteousness described as falling short of the glory of God. The glory of God is the standard of what righteousness is. Let me give you an illustration of this. So it's a little-known fact. Some of you, most of you don't know this because you just see Tim up here strumming a guitar. Most of you don't know that Tim has some serious hops. If you don't know what that means, that means he can jump really high. And, uh, and so uh, let's say that you see him out and he's dunking a basketball uh, on, a, uh, on a goal. And then let's say you look and you see him dunk the basketball on the goal and you think, I don't think that was 10 feet. That's not regulation. And you tell him, hey, I think that goal is only eight feet. And he says, no, 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 it's regulation. It's 10 feet because Tim's going to argue with you no matter what. And so you get into this arguing match with him. Do you just at the end of the day, do you just say, well, agree to disagree? That's your opinion. 
No, what do you do? You go and you get a tape measure and you measure it. And you find out who is right and who is wrong. Now, let's imagine that you measure it and it shows that that thing is eight and a half feet. All right? And then Tim comes back and he says, ah, that tape measure is broken. It doesn't work. What would you think of Tim? Right? You would think he's out of his mind, right? The tape measure is the standard. It's the standard. You don't assess the tape measure on the basis of the goal. You assess the goal on the basis of the uh, tape measure. But that's what we do when we call into question God's justice. You don't measure God by your presupposed standard of justice. You measure justice by God. When it comes to the question of justice, the glory of God is the standard. And so what Paul is saying is that God is not unrighteous. God is not unjust in choosing some and rejecting others unconditionally because in doing so, he manifests his glory. And the glory of God is the ruler. It is the standard. It is the measuring tape of justice. That's what Paul is saying there. He's also saying, in addition to that, that this quote is reminding us of the reality that mercy is unmerited. By its very definition, mercy is something that we don't merit. It's not something that we deserved. It is absolutely unmerited and undeserved. So how can God be just when He condemns those who deserve condemnation? How can God be unjust when He simply gives mercy to others that are deserving of condemnation? You see, in Paul's theology, in biblical theology, nobody ever gets worse than they actually deserve. Some get better than what they deserve, and some get exactly what they deserve. There's only one person in the entire history of the world who's ever gotten worse than they deserve, and that is Jesus Christ. So none get worse. So if you read last week's text and all this talk about election, and you're bothered by the example of the rejection of Ishmael and Esau, you've missed the point. The point of that text is not the rejection of uh, Ishmael, uh, Ishmael and, uh, and, uh, and the rejection of, uh, of Esau. The point of that is instead the grace that God shows to Isaac and Jacob. We shouldn't be bothered by the examples of Ishmael and Isaac. We should instead marvel at God's choice of Isaac and Jacob. No one is deserving of God's love or compassion or grace. Every one of us. Every one of us is deserving of His wrath. Every single one of us. And let's look at the implication of this in verse 16 where he writes, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Lest we think that God can't mean, or Paul can't mean, that our wills and our works have nothing at all to do with who is saved, who is chosen, he now clearly states what he's already implied before, that when it comes to God's choice and election, God's choice of whom he will effectually call to himself, whom he will regenerate unto faith, it says it depends not on human will. Let me read that again. It depends not on human will. Listen one more time. It depends not on human will. This is a death blow anyone who would imagine that our free will is what ultimately influences God's choice of us. Paul's just said that election is in no way dependent upon human will or works. 
That pretty much sums up the totality of human capacity before God. Neither our desires or our doing influences God's choice. This could not be clearer. Honestly, it could not be clearer for us. And yet, some try to avoid the implications of this passage. Probably the most common way that some people try to avoid what this passage is really saying is they'll say, well, this passage isn't really about salvation. Paul's not talking about eternal life and death. That's not what he means by election. He's talking about some sort of temporal blessings. They got to elect certain people to get certain uh, aspects of uh, his just sort of temporal blessings. And then God elects some people that they don't get some of those blessings. God's not talking about eternal life and death, but that doesn't work. That reading of the text doesn't work for a couple of reasons. First, think back a couple of weeks ago in verses 1 through 5. Think back to Paul's emotion. He says, I have unceasing sorrow and anguish. He says, I could wish that I were condemned. I were cut off from Christ for the sake of my kinsmen. If he's not talking about condemnation, if he's not talking about life and death, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I think every one of us in this room would understand if a parent was absolutely devastated if their kid passes away. Every one of us in this room would sympathize and understand if a parent was absolutely devastated if their kid gets some sort of terminal sickness. But I think every one of us in this room would mock that parent who is lying in the corner in a fetal position, bawling their eyes out because their kid didn't make student counsel. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Paul's anguish that he experiences doesn't make any sense whatsoever unless he's talking about something that's actually worthy of that anguish. A second reason that that doesn't work, to say that this isn't about eternal life, that this is just about some sort of temporal blessing, is the very language that he uses. As we get later on in the text, he's talking about the contrast between wrath and mercy. And the text says that there is no condemnation. There is no wrath for believers. So he's talking about that. He talks about destruction versus glory. These are very strong terms related to salvation. And third, the context, the the overarching context of Romans is about justification. It's about righteousness. Not only the overarching context of the entire book, but uh, the context of Romans 8 through 10. Romans 8, we began. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is salvific. That's relating to eternal life. The end of Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God, neither angels nor rulers nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. He's talking about salvation. As we get to Romans 10, look at verses 1 through 4. Paul will write, immediately after our passage uh, in, uh, in Romans 9, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved that they may be saved. For I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's talking about justification. He's talking about life. He's talking about salvation. The context is clearly about salvation. So Romans 9 and election is clearly about salvation salvation. Any attempts on our part to wiggle out of the implications of this passage won't work. Paul has just said that election unto eternal life 
doesn't depend on man's will or man's work. Instead, it's completely, it's utterly, it's absolutely dependent on God's mercy. And as we'll soon see, he's free to give it and to withhold it as he pleases. Let's look in verse 17 how he develops this. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So as evidence of God's justice in exercising this free mercy, Paul's going to appeal to the example of Pharaoh with a quote that's actually from uh, Exodus 9.16. But Paul is expecting, as he quotes Exodus 9.16, Paul's expecting his readers to be familiar with the overarching context of what's happening in, uh, in the book of Exodus, and particularly with the idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. We know that that's in Paul's mind because as we will get to verse 18 of Romans 9, Paul will explicitly says that God has mercy and he hardens. So the idea of hardening is very much on the forefront of Paul's mind here in, uh, in verse 17. In other words, what Paul's doing is he knows if he can prove that God is righteous in rejecting some, then he's proven the righteousness of God's election. Remember, God's glory is the ultimate standard of what is and is not just, what is and is not righteous. Notice the appeal here to God's glory. He says, why was Pharaoh raised up? For this very purpose? What was the purpose? In order to display God's power and name. In other words, to display God's glory. God is not unjust in raising up or hardening Pharaoh's heart if his doing so displays and demonstrates his glory. So I want to talk a little bit about the hardening of Pharaoh. I just want us to think about this for a second. Why would God ever harden someone's heart? Why would God ever harden someone's heart? Pop evangelicalism out there, most of the stuff that you would read if you go to uh, to, to Lifeway, if you go to uh, Mardell or something like that. Most of the stuff that's out there on the internet is just cliched. It doesn't have any answer for that whatsoever. Most of our theological convictions can't actually conceive of God ever hardening someone's heart. He's all love. He's no wrath. He's all grace. He's no judgment. He's all mercy. He's no hardening well, the problem with that is that the Bible explicitly says that Pharaoh hardened, or God hardens Pharaoh's heart. In fact, it says 18 times in the book of Exodus that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Of those 18 times, in nine of them, God is explicitly said to be the one who is hardening Pharaoh's heart. God tells Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Or the text says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. In another six of them, it just simply says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, but the implied subject who's doing the hardening is God. In only three of the 18 is Pharaoh the one who is said to harden his own heart. So the question is, does God harden Pharaoh's heart, or does Pharaoh harden Pharaoh's heart? And that's a bad question because the answer is yes. The answer is both and. We call this compatibilism. That's the idea that God's sovereignty is compatible. That's why we call it compatibilism. It's compatible 
with, uh, with man's responsibility that God can somehow mysteriously exercise absolute, utter, complete sovereignty even over the actions that we personally freely commit. That our responsibility doesn't somehow limit God's sovereignty and the fact that God is sovereign doesn't simply mean that we are irresponsible puppets or robots or something like that. We'll explore that in a second, but for now... Let's see the implication that Paul gives uh, as he moves into verse 18, which says, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So here's the implication of the previous verse, that Pharaoh wasn't just an exception. Instead, he's an example of this principle of election, this principle of predestination, which is that God has mercy on whomever he wants, and God hardens whomever he wants. By harden, I mean to render the heart unresponsive and, uh, and resolute in its rebellion and its resistance toward God. Now that, if we're being honest, that is hard, that is haunting, that is humbling. That is a very heavy word for us, this movie. You ever see this morning, this, you ever see a movie where uh, humanity suddenly discovers that there are aliens living among them? or that, uh, that there are these mutants with superpowers, or they're superheroes, or something like that? You ever see one of these movies? What is the typical response of humanity whenever all of a sudden they are hit with this knowledge? It's typically not joy and gladness. What is it? It's fear. It's trepidation. It's doubt. It's suspicion. All of these sorts of things. Man calls a congressional hearing to condemn this big threat. Man's world unravels as he begins to realize that all of a sudden he might not be the most powerful creature in all of the universe. Whenever he realizes that he's not actually at the center of the universe, well, likewise, when we read the scope of God's sovereignty in Scripture, our world can unravel. All of a sudden we realize that our wills are not at the center of the universe, that God has mercy on whomever He wants, and He hardens whomever He wants. And so our innate response is fear, our innate response is anger, our innate response is doubt or distrust or whatever it might be. Maybe, maybe even as we're talking about this, maybe right now in your heart, that is even rising up. And you think, how dare God do this? How dare He harden someone's heart? What gives Him the right? Who does He think He is? We're going to get to that shortly, but first I just want us to note one thing about this passage, and that is that God's mercy and His hardening are parallel. They kind of run side by side, if you will. If you try to soften one, you necessarily soften the other. If you limit His freedom to harden whomever He wants, you are also uh, implicitly limiting his ability to show mercy to whomever he wants, which means that you turn mercy from something that is unmerited into something that's deserved, into something that is merited, into something that God is obligated to do. If you soften this language of God's hardening, you're also at the same time softening the language of God's mercy. So these are parallel realities, but at the same time, they're also asymmetrical. Here's what I mean by that. By virtue of sin all deserve judgment, but none deserve mercy. Those whom God hardens, the Bible would say, they deserve to be hardened. 
those whom he shows mercy, you know what? They also deserve to be hardened, but instead, God shows mercy. They don't deserve mercy. It's unmerited favor. Now, in verse 19, Paul's going to, again, give us one of these checkpoints to make sure we're really following his line of thought. And so let's look at verse 19. Paul writes, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Because it's Halloween and uh, I don't really like Halloween. Uh, My wife's birthday is uh, October 31st, so I get to celebrate her birthday and not Halloween. That's why I married her. Not really. Uh, But I was thinking the other day about just how uh, weird a number of like children's things and children's toys are, like certain children's shows where I look at the characters on the show and I say, that's terrifying. I don't know why they think that would be a good idea for a, uh, a children's program or something like that. And then I was thinking of all these sort of toys and that kind of stuff, like life-size baby dolls. You ever been in a room where you tried to sleep when there's these life-size dolls? My rule of thumb is if their eyes are open, my eyes are open, right? I'm not sleeping that night. Or clowns. You ever think how scary clowns are? If you ever saw it, I saw it whenever I was a really little kid. Bad parenting move on my parents' part because now I'm terrified of clowns. Another thing I really don't like are puppets, especially like ventriloquist puppet. What I don't like about ventriloquists or their puppets is that the ventriloquist will have their little puppet, their dummy, say something, and the ventriloquist will like act like he's, he'll feign surprise and he's shocked. And everybody knows, that's not the dummy. That's you, dummy. You're the one who's actually saying it. We know the puppet's not actually responsible. We know the ventriloquist is responsible. That is the idea that Paul is responding to here. If you're taking his theology in such a way as to think, because God is sovereign, we're just puppets. So God can't hold us responsible. Then you've missed the mark somewhere. You've gone off. So this is a checkpoint for us. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? That's the question that he is asking. Does God's sovereignty mean that we're all just puppets? Is God just a big ventriloquist? He just makes us do whatever he wants, and if so, are we really to blame for our sin? That's what he is asking. If God shows mercy to whomever he wants, if he hardens whomever he wants, regardless of human effort, regardless of human choice, regardless of human will, then how can he possibly assign blame to human beings for their choices and actions? God's will determines whatever occurs. And thus he, rather than human beings, should be held responsible is the idea here. And before we tackle this objection, again, to use this as a checkpoint to make sure that we are following along with what Paul is saying, notice that this doesn't make sense at all if you've misinterpreted what he's said before and you think uh, that God chooses us on the basis of our will. When Paul asked the question, who can resist his will, he would have just simply said, no, 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 you're misunderstanding me. Anyone can resist God's will. That's not what I'm saying. So the, the, the question, the objection presupposes that we're moving in the right direction. In other words, Paul is going to agree with the idea that God is ultimately responsible. He's going to disagree, though, with the conclusion that God's sovereignty somehow limits or negates our responsibility for uh, our sin. As we talked about in, uh, as we explored irresistible grace and theological equipping a few weeks ago, 
that God's effectual call cannot ultimately be resisted. Irresistible grace doesn't mean that we can't resist God's real uh, will. It means that God can overcome any and all of our resistance. So who can resist God's will in the sense that Paul means? And his answer is implied, no. No one. It's a rhetorical question. If you answer that question by saying anyone or someone, then you've missed the point. Who can resist God's will? He anticipates, he expects you to say no one. When it comes to God's sovereign will, no one can resist it. So Paul agrees with the premise, none can resist God's sovereign will, but he disagrees with the conclusion that therefore man is not responsible or that man can't find fault. Again, we call this idea compatibilism, that God's sovereignty and, uh, and man's responsibility are compatible. How those are both true, the, the Bible is going to leave in some sort of perpetual mystery for us, but we can't resolve the tension by simply letting go of one or the other, by simply saying, well, then I guess God isn't really sovereign. I guess man really has a little bit of freedom that's outside of the scope of God's sovereignty. Or we can't come on this side and say, well, I guess man isn't really responsible. I guess maybe God is unjust or unfair. No, the Bible is going to simultaneously hold together the idea that God is absolutely, utterly sovereign. However sovereign you think He is, He is more so. He is infinitely sovereign over all things, and yet man is still responsible for his sin. How those two things can coexist simultaneously, I don't know, but there's a lot that I don't know. I don't know how God... Uh, can be one God and yet three persons. And yet I have to hold to that sort of uh, logical tension. I don't understand how Jesus can be fully God and fully man and yet not be two persons, and yet I have to hold to that theological tension. What I can't do is I can't just simply say, because I don't understand how both of these are true, I'm going to let go of one. If so, I tumble into heresy. So we don't have to fully understand. In fact, the passage isn't going to fully explain how God can be ultimately and completely sovereign, and yet we can be responsible for our sin. But we have to hold to both of them, even as we don't understand them. So let's look at verses 20 through 21, where we begin to get at least a hint of an answer to the question. And he says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of uh, the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So in the previous verse, Paul had introduced this objection in the form of a question. But it's really kind of fascinating that the way that he answers the question is by not really answering the question. Instead, he just simply turns the question back on the person who is asking the question. He's going to ask four consecutive questions in response to this objection. You will say to me then, uh, or or, uh, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Paul's going to say, I see your two questions and I raise you four questions. This reminds me of the book of Job. If you haven't read that lately, go back and uh, read that. Job is going to spend 37 chapters or something like that asking questions and justifying himself. And then uh, God finally arrives on the scene and he begins to speak and he doesn't answer any of Job's question. Instead, God asks Job question after question after question after question after question. And I won't keep going because there's 77 of them that God asks question after question. 
In other words, all he's doing there is he's unraveling the idea that Job could even uh, approach the ability to rightly question God. He's going to humble Job so that when Job is done, he's going to say, I shouldn't even have spoken because I'm speaking of things that are far out of my league. That's the same thing that Paul is doing here. He's going to basically make this point. Who are you to question God? Now, does this mean that we can't ask God questions? No, not at all. That's not what Paul is uh, saying. But he is going to say, beware. Watch out. What's the heart behind the question? Make sure that your humble uh, inquiry doesn't become this boastful claim. Imagine, if you will, as an illustration, imagine that you have a child and you ask your child to clean the room. And as all of our children do, they immediately say, yes, ma'am, or yes, sir. And they go into their room, they immediately clean it, they make their bed, they get out pledge and they dust, they get on a ladder and they like dust their ceiling fan and everything. I mean, they just go all out in cleaning their room. They don't just throw everything under the bed, they do a great job. And then afterwards, they come up to you and they give you a big hug and a big kiss and they say, mommy or daddy, whom I dearly love and I serve with my whole heart, why do I have to clean my room? Now, take that picture and contrast it with what none of our kids ever do, which is whenever we ask them to clean the room, they rip their shirts off, they throw something against the wall, they run into their room, they slam the door, and they scream, why do I have to clean my room? Those are totally different, right? They're asking the exact same question, why? Why do I have to clean my room? And yet the heart behind them is profoundly different. That's what Paul is doing here. He's making sure that we don't encroach upon this idea that we can actually question God. You can ask questions of God, but you never have the right to actually question God, if that makes sense. Paul is warning us to beware lest this humble inquiry becomes a proud objection. He says, how can created, finite humans object to an infinite and eternal Creator, God? At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter if you or I can make sense of election We are just humans. Some of us have traveled to a lot of countries. We have a lot of stamps on our passport. We're not omnipresent, and God is. He's everywhere, and He's nowhere at once. You're fragile. You're frail. You've encountered pickle jars that you couldn't open. God is omnipotent. There is nothing that He cannot do. You sometimes forget your birthday. You sometimes, like, call your spouse by the wrong name. God is omniscient. He knows all things at once. He doesn't learn. There is an infinite distance between you and God. You are a pot. God is a potter. This common Old Testament metaphor implying that God has absolute rights over you as your creator. As I mentioned, I am no fan of uh, puppets or ventriloquists, but I will defend ventriloquists uh, here. Suppose that you see a ventriloquist and you see them throwing their dummy into a dumpster. Are you going to call people for the ethical treatment of dummies? Is that person, is that ventriloquist going to go to jail for dummy abuse? Of course not, right? If anything, he's actually done the world a favor. There's one less dummy out there, all right? But why is it all of a sudden, if we understand that a ventriloquist can do whatever he wants with a dummy, why does it somehow affect us negatively to think that God, the potter, can do whatever he wants with us as pots? 
because you and I think we're not pots, we're people. But if the distance between a pot and the potter is this great, how much more is the distance between a created being and the Creator? How much greater? It's an infinite distance between a finite being and an infinite God. So here's the challenge to this text. The very thing that we need to confront our pride and presumption is a message that's going to offend our pride and presumption. This passage doesn't really answer our question. We just don't like the answer because we're looking for an answer that really asserts our rights, our wills, our freedom. And instead, we're confronted in the passage by the unflinching sovereignty of God and His rights, His will, His freedom to do as He desires for His glory. Let's look at verses 22 through 23, which is perhaps the closest we get to God's motivation or reason for election and reprobation. Romans 9, 22 through 23, what if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory? I want to mention as we uh, begin, the reason that we cut this off in verse 23 in English, uh, it ends mid-sentence. It wasn't just an arbitrary choice on our part. In Greek, actually, verse 24 begins an entirely new thought, so we're going to take that uh, next week. But what we keep doing, we keep expecting, maybe even hoping for Paul to backpedal in the text, to back up and to say, that's not really what I meant. Of course, mankind is ultimately in control, at least a little bit in control. Of course, God isn't unjust. He gives everyone an equal chance. We can resist His will. We keep expecting Him to apply these sort of breaks, but instead He just pushes the gas even harder. This passage is kind of like chemo or radiation when you have cancer. It's really hard for your body to accept, and yet its potency is the very thing that is necessary. It's the very thing that makes it effective. That's what God's sovereignty does. Nothing in our flesh likes the idea of God's unlimited rule and reign, and yet that is the one truth and reality that we most need to hear. If all sin springs from pride, then there is no greater message to confront our pride than the utter sovereignty of God. There are plenty of churches out there that will tickle your ears with the idea that God is all about your glory and your goodness, and your will, and your desires, and they are just giving you sugar pills to combat the cancer of sin. Here's what Paul's saying here, that God shows patience to those whom He passes over in judgment in order to magnify His power and glory for the sake of the elect. This might be the first time you've ever thought about this before. Maybe you were just driving by Virginia, and you saw this little church, and you thought, I'm going to go in here for some lighthearted entertainment some lighthearted encouragement today, and you just got thrown into the deepest abyss in all of Scripture, welcome to Parkway. Come back next week. It's not going to be quite as uh, heavy next week. But what I think Paul's doing here, I think he's once again reaching back into the narrative of Pharaoh. He's expecting his readers to be familiar with what's happening in Exodus. So let's look back in Exodus at how God speaks of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 10, 1 through 2. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that, look at that word, that, I may show these signs of mine among them, and that 
You may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. What's interesting is that nearly every one of the nine references in the book of Exodus to God explicitly hardening Pharaoh's heart is going to have similar language there. It's going to have these purpose statements. So that, in order that, and Paul is going to say, look at the theology that, uh, is, uh, that is derived from that. God hardens Pharaoh's heart that we might see his power. God hardens Pharaoh's heart so that Egypt would see his glory and so forth. What's God saying? He isn't hardening Pharaoh's heart capriciously, without purpose. It's not like God simply delights in torturing the Egyptians like a little kid with a magnifying uh, glass burning ants or something like that. There's mercy and grace and, and even purpose in the plagues and the Red Sea. Each time that Pharaoh refuses to let the people go, what's the effect? A plague. A plague comes. And what does that plague highlight? What highlights God's power over creation, God's power over the Egyptian gods, but it also highlights God's mercy because Israel is spared from the plagues. So what's the result? Both Israel and Egypt see God's glory manifest through these plagues. In fact, many scholars believe that some Egyptians, having seen God's glory, having seen God's power, they flee with uh, Israel in the Exodus. In addition, if you're reading uh, later on in Scripture, uh, you'll notice that whenever uh, the spies get to Jericho and they meet Rahab, she says, we've heard of what your God has done. And that's the reason she helps the spies. What's happening here? Had God simply destroyed Pharaoh immediately, his people would not have seen his glory and his mercy and his patience and his power, and they needed to see it if they were to love and trust him in the wilderness. So God bore with patience even as He demonstrated His power. So by hardening Pharaoh's heart, Israel and even some Gentiles tasted of God's grace and were brought into covenant with Him. That is a summary of Romans 9, 14 through 23. We've kind of sped through it. It's one of the most difficult Scriptures uh, in all of the Bible Not so much because it's hard for us to wrap our minds around, but rather because it's hard for us to wrap our hearts around. At the end of the day, we don't like it. We wish God did things a little bit differently. If we're honest, we don't really like a God-centered Bible. We want a man-centered Bible. To be more specific, I want a me-centered Bible, and you want a you-centered Bible. This passage confronts that desire head-on. We're driving along in our little Prius of pride and presumption and presupposition, and God's sovereignty hits us like a train head on, and it destroys us. It unravels us, but ultimately so that we would be built up in holiness and in humility. So what do we do with it? I just have three applications, and it kind of depends on who we are. As I say, what do we do with it? It depends on who the we is Some of you today might not be sure if you're a vessel of mercy. You've never really repented of sin or trusted in Christ's death and resurrection. So what should you do today? You should cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Romans 9 is not written to explain why you can't love and trust Jesus. 
Romans 9 is written to explain how you can love and trust Jesus by the mercy of a merciful God who gives grace to His people. If you have any desire right now for mercy, that in and of itself is an evidence of God's mercy in your life. Others of us, we do love and trust Jesus, but we find this passage really difficult to embrace. And I think to some degree we always will. There's a sense in which we tremble under this word, but we shouldn't tremble in terror. Instead, we should tremble as if we're holding this treasure of inestimable value, this ancient priceless treasure or something like it. Not trembling in terror, but in holy reverence. We tremble under the message of God's sovereignty because it's a treasure of inestimable value. And so if we don't treasure this word this morning, if we don't tremble under it in reverence, we should confess. We should repent of that this morning. Confess that we wish it was another way, that we don't like predestination and election. Don't compound the sin of not liking what God does with the sin of not confessing that. Confess that we think we deserve something else. So would you confess that this morning? Would you confess that thought? Would you confess that feeling, not only to God, but also to others? Some of you will walk away from, uh, from this this morning, hating this truth, but not telling anyone, like someone who's lost but refuses to ask for directions. But would you have the honesty, the integrity, the vulnerability to confess that you don't like this? Would you bring it up at lunch? Would you bring it up in your community group? Would you bring that to our upcoming theological equipping class where we're just going to ask questions? Would you be humble enough to admit, allow the church to be the church by bearing your burden? And then a final implication or application of this is in light of God's mercy, we should go and do likewise. Jesus says, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. As vessels of mercy, as those who have tasted of God's grace, we show mercy to others, unmerited grace and compassion towards those who are least deserving. Not just our friends and family. Jesus will say, even the Gentiles do that. No, but to coworkers and to neighbors, that guy in traffic who cuts you off, would you pray for them? Would you speak well of them? Would you take them a meal? Would you invite them to dinner? Would you apologize for the 1% that you have contributed to an offense? Would you forgive even their 99%? You see, God has the right to withhold mercy as He pleases, but we do not. As this text isn't justification for our unbelief, so this text isn't justification for our disobedience. We are under His command to be merciful even to our enemies. We can only do that by grace, so let's pray. Father, I pray that You would help this little church to tremble under and to treasure this message of Your sovereign grace. Would you help us to appreciate your mercy and to be merciful? Would you use this message to expose our pride, our presumption, our presuppositions, that we might be a people who are holy and humble? May your kingdom come. May your will be done. We ask for you are good and all you do is good. So help us to see and believe that by your Spirit. We pray through Christ who is your Son. Amen.